All right. <clears throat> Good morning to you all. Hope you can hear me well. We want to take a few minutes to focus on the truth because it's our God that we need to focus on in times like these, as well as even when things are going well, um, every day is an opportunity to focus on the truth. And so if you would turn to Daniel chapter three, hopefully you have your Bibles and we want to look at Daniel chapter three this morning, um, which is a very, very um, familiar story. But it's a great story that um, reminds us of uh, how we need to trust God, regardless of what we're we're going to face. Obviously, we we know that we're called by God to trust him and to love people in every situation. And the story that we'll look at this morning is a story that encourages us uh, to trust God in the face of suffering and to love people uh, in light of whatever we're being called upon to do, uh, in this case, by our government. And so in many situations, we uh, often encourage people to ask the question, uh, what would Jesus do? And in this story, uh, I think we already know what Jesus would do if he were put in this, these circumstances, because he was. And we can read the New Testament. We can see what the Lord Jesus did in facing the cross and facing suffering and how he was faithful to the end. And so the, maybe the better question to ask as we read this story this morning and look at its implications for us is uh, not so much what would Jesus do, although that's always important and should always be in our minds, but also the question, what would I do? And am I prepared to, to do what these men did under similar circumstances? Uh, because the Bible is given to us for instruction, it's given to us for encouragement, it's given to us to uh, pray for grace, to imitate the faith of those who've gone before us. And that's why we have this story uh, in the Bible, a true story indeed. And so um, one of the um, movies that we enjoy in our household is Facing the Giants. And I thought about this movie, Facing the Giants, in light of the story in Daniel chapter 3, because uh, the story of facing the Giants is a story about a football coach and his wife, and they're trying to have a baby, and she can't get pregnant, and their car is breaking down, and their house smells, and um, they have all these things uh, going on that just aren't working out. Their football team is bad, and so all of this is playing out in the movie. Then finally, both of them Surrender everything to God, everything to Jesus, and everything begins to change. And uh, she gets pregnant, and they win the football championship, and they get a new car, and they find the rat in the house, and everything is wonderful by the end of the movie. And we've talked about the fact that some people look at those kinds of movies and say, well, isn't that a little unrealistic? Isn't that oversimplifying things? Uh, isn't that sort of misrepresenting uh, how things typically play out? Well, the interesting thing is you read Daniel chapter 3, and that's the same kind of thing that happens in Daniel chapter 3. You have a story in which there are negative things happening, but everything plays out wonderfully. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing to tell a story like that, but we just need to understand that all stories don't go along those same lines in every detail, but there's an important truth that basically highlights the fact 
that for the people of God, there is no downside, that God is always working everything together for our good. And so in light of that, we want to uh, uh, maybe begin by keeping in mind 1 Peter chapter 4, because I believe Peter probably had Daniel chapter 3 in mind when he wrote in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And so uh, Peter talks about a fiery ordeal when he's talking about trials that test our faith. And there's every reason to believe that he had in mind uh, this story in Daniel chapter 3, in which these believers experience a literal fiery trial that tests their faith. And they come through it, and their faith is shown to be real. And um, they have much to rejoice over as a result. And so in Daniel chapter 3, you see the challenge of living under a pagan government as believers in the true God. Um, Again, there's a lot of uh, uh, foundation I'm trying to lay here, but let me just add one more thing. There's a tension in Scripture when we think about the government, and we talked about this a little bit, um, that on the one hand, the Bible says government is a blessing, and we need to support government. Um, it says in Romans 13, those governments that exist are established by God. Uh, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Uh, governments are a minister of God to us for good. Um it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil, and rulers are servants of God. And so government is a good thing. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, it says we're to pray for kings and all those in, a, in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, which means when government functions well, it actually fosters um Christianity, it fosters the spread of the gospel. It fosters godly living. And so government isn't a bad thing. And uh, just look at uh, the results of the defund the police movement or the BLM riots. And that's a couple of illustrations of how government, when it's not functioning as, as it should be, results in all kinds of terrible consequences. And so on the one hand, government is a blessing. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego serve the king of of Babylon, and they see it as a blessing to be able to do so. And so we always have to keep that in mind, while at the same time, the Bible indicates that there is the reality that government can go into beast mode. And that's why um, later on in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, uh, is caused to uh, take on the mind of a beast. He becomes a beast and lives for seven years like an animal. And that's God's way of saying the way you're operating as the king is you're being beastly. And so there are other instances in the book of Daniel where governments are pictured as beasts. And even in the book of Revelation, 
Um, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land are both uh, representative of different kinds of authorities and governments and institutions. And so we have to realize that uh, government can be something that persecutes the people of God, something that not only persecutes the people of God, but even runs roughshod over its own people and is, is like the Nazis. We don't consider uh, the government under the Nazis in Germany in World War II to be a good thing. And it's, it was a beast uh, destroying its own people and destroying other people as well. And so in one sense, because government can be a blessing and is intended by God to be a blessing, we need to support the legitimate use of power. But because it can be a beast, we need to oppose the illegitimate, illegitimate abuse of power as well. And that, that's why we do the same thing in other areas. There's authority uh, with regard in marriage and family and the workplace uh, and um, in the church. And we support the proper exercise of authority, but we're to oppose the abuse of authority. And so what we see happening here in Daniel chapter three is men standing up to saying to say we're not going to support the abuse of authority and we're not going to submit to mandates that are not right. And so let me read for us the first seven verses of Daniel chapter three, and then we'll highlight some things from it as we go through this uh, today. Daniel 3, verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So the first point we want to just highlight in this first section of this story in Daniel 3 is the problem of unchecked power. We see Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of uh, the Babylonian Empire from 605 to 562 B.C. in the 6th century B.C., Babylon, um, would have been located in modern-day Turkey. Um, this gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar built was about 90 feet high and about 9 by 9 at its base. And so it was nine stories high, a very, very high, um, impressive structure. 
um, may have been completely made out of gold or maybe just gold plated. It's not really sure. Um, but it's likely that it was designed in light of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter two, because in Daniel chapter two, verse 31, Daniel, uh, uh, highlights for King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, what he saw in his dream and the implications of it. And he says in verse 31 of chapter two, you, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. And then it goes on to say that the other parts of the body were made of other different metals. It goes on in verse 36 and says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation or its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, we don't know how much time has uh, elapsed since the dream and uh, Nebuchadnezzar building the uh, statue here, but it's very possible that he decided to make a statue fully of gold that reflected him, that it was actually pointing to himself because he was the head of gold, Daniel said, and now he's made a statue fully of gold. And so when he calls the people to worship the statue, it could be in some sense that he's calling them to worship this new God that he's created, but it's much more likely that he's calling them to worship himself. Worship him as the king of kings over all things. And so over and over, it talks about all the rulers that are commanded to worship, all the peoples that are commanded to worship, all the all kinds of music that are being uh, used and played to encourage people uh, to worship. And it's painting a picture of a universal uh, requirement to worship the king and at least the king and his gods, if not simply the king himself. Um, You probably recall as a parent that when your kids are really small, you might tell them to do something and they would say, why daddy or why mommy? And you might respond because I said so. And basically King Nebuchadnezzar is telling all the peoples that are under his rule that you were to worship this statue because I say so. There doesn't appear to be any argument with regard to um, the greatness and wonder and and benefits of worshiping uh, this statue or worshiping this God. It all seems to point to you worship this statue because I say so. It's a because I said so mandate. No exceptions. And that's very typical of what we might call the daddy state. You know, whenever we're dependent on the government, and the government thinks it can simply say, you do this because I said so. You're dependent on me. Uh, what are what are your options? You have no other options. And so therefore, uh, you just need to do what I tell you to do, or you're going to suffer uh, for it. And so that's why um, the The issue of power comes into play here because uh, some have said 
Um, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We need to think about that a little bit because if that truly is uh, true in every sense and in every case, then that would mean God would be corrupt uh, because God is the all most powerful person there is and could ever be, and yet he is completely incorruptible. And so um, power itself is not corrupt. Otherwise, God would be corrupt. But the problem is with us as fallen creatures. That's the problem. It's sort of like in the Lord of the Rings. You know, Boromir and others can't handle the ring. They can't handle uh, the power because it corrupts men. It corrupts other beings that cannot handle having great or absolute power. And so um, the problem is not in power. The problem is in the sinful heart of man. And that's why um, a lot of people argue for some kind of democratic form of government, um, because they will say that I believe in some kind of um, accountability to the, the people uh, because of the fall of man. Uh, they would say that men are not inherently good and that you um, cause them much trouble the more power you give them, the more sway you give them, the, the more unchecked they are, uh, the more likely they are to do harm rather than good, which is very, very interesting when you really think about that. And um, it's actually C.S. Lewis who talks about the fact that he's one of those who um, believes in some form of democratic uh, kind of government where the people uh, hold their leaders accountable. Um, and he says uh, that he's always uh, leery when there's sudden changes happening in a society. And he says that usually those changes happen because a small group of people are getting together and somehow trying to manipulate things to get their way. And he says he never trusts a small group of people to have absolute power. Uh, he says that their grand goals of improving society will actually result in harm to that very society. He puts it this way. He says, the worst of all public dangers is the Committee of Public Safety. Now, just think about that in terms of what we're going through in our own country. Now, we have uh, leaders who are saying, um, we need to protect all of you. And therefore, you just need to do what we tell you to do. And C.S. Lewis and others would say, whenever governments start talking like that, that's in the name of public safety. And they begin to say, don't don't evaluate what we're telling you to do. Don't don't try to uh, ask if there are any exceptions or anything like that. Just follow what we're telling you to do. That's a big red flag. And we see that reflected here in the first part of this story. Well, let's go on to the next part. Now, this is a little longer section, verses 8 through 23, and it highlights again what is really taking place here, which is, you could argue, the issue of control, that really what's happening here in this story isn't so much about Nebuchadnezzar wanting to improve the lives of his people 
by giving them an encouragement to worship a God who's going to serve them well. But rather, it's all about them serving him well and him exercising control over all the people, including the Jewish people. So in verse 8, it says, For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? That's the all-important question. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. All right, so what we have going on here, obviously, are possibly uh, one reason why this statue was built beyond um, King Nebuchadnezzar wanting to encourage the people to worship him. But a part of that would be to expose those whose hearts were not uh, willing to submit to either the gods of the king or to the king himself, which would namely be the Jewish people. It would be something that they would have expected, as that knowing the Jewish people, knowing that they worshipped only one God, that they could expect that there would be Jews who would resist this call. And indeed, that's what we find happening. And they point out 
that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were officials in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, who were serving the king because government is a blessing, uh, were called uh, to, to appear before the king because they would not go so far as to worship the statue. Now, one question that comes up is, where is Daniel in the story? Why isn't Daniel called to account as well? And the reality is, we have no idea. Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know if he was at home sick and wasn't a part of what was going on, or if he was on assignment in some other country, or who knows what was going on with Daniel. Um, I think it's very likely, though, in light of what happened in Daniel chapter 2, and in light of what King Nebuchadnezzar said about Daniel, and how he elevated Daniel into uh, a primary position in the government because of his ability to uh, tell the king his dream and its interpretation. It's very possible that these men who accused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thought it might be easier to start with them than to start with Daniel because the king might be a little reticent to throw Daniel into the lion's den, or, well, later on in the lion's den, but uh, into the fiery furnace. Uh, but might be much more open to throwing these three men because they weren't as near and dear to his heart as Daniel. So it might have been a strategic move on their part, and maybe they thought uh, later on they could implicate Daniel as well. But I think it's helpful to recognize that their appeal to King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't that they weren't I don't think so much focused on the fact that these men were uh, failing to worship as they should, but that they were disregarding the king. And that's how they appealed to the king. And I think that's what exposes the real intention of the king's heart. Because in verse 12, it says, um, these men, O king, have disregarded you. Now, they tie in the issue of the worship of his gods and the worship of the statue, but that seems to be secondary to they have disregarded you. And I think that's because what was primary in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar was that they do what he said, that in that sense, they worship him. That was primary in uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's heart, and that's why it was primary in their appeal to King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, obviously, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, you know, we really don't have anything to say. That when, it's, when it says, they say in verse 16, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter that can come across kind of harsh. It's really something that's hard to translate uh, from the Hebrew, uh, but many people would say the implication seems to be we are not about to debate you on this point or to argue one way or another on this point. Our heart is settled. In light of Exodus 20, um, Exodus 20 makes it very, very clear that for the Jewish people, in order to worship the true God, they were not to bow down before any other statue. And so it says in Exodus 20, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children from the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, were already settled in their heart. They would not do that, no matter who commanded them to do it. And so they said to the king, essentially, um, oh, king, we really uh, aren't going to even try to defend ourselves on this matter. We've said it in our own hearts. We're not going to do it. And they go on to say, though, that we believe that there is a God that can save us out of your hand. And we actually believe he will save us out of your hand. But if he doesn't, we still will not do what you call us to do. And so they're basically leaving open the possibility that God in his sovereign wisdom might not rescue them. But they feel at that point confident that God would do it. And as some have said, there are times in in our lives that uh, God can give people what has been called the gift of faith. And it goes beyond just the normal exercise of faith, but it's it's a strong confidence that God is going to do something. And that appears to be what was taking place for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that God was giving them a strong confidence that he was going to uh, protect them in the fire. But they still basically uh, argue that even if um, even if they're wrong, about that. God is not wrong, and it is not wrong for them to be faithful to God under these circumstances, and indeed under all circumstances. And so the issue here, again, really isn't an issue of worship, although it's couched in worship. It's couched in religious terms, um, which makes it seem more spiritual uh, to obey in some sense. But it really comes down to King Nebuchadnezzar and his government wanting to exercise control and make sure he had control over the people. And we have to recognize that that is the potential of government. That is the beast mode of government. Uh, Someone else has um, highlighted the fact that the modern state and it's talk. uh, This person is talking about. Um, developments over the last uh, century or so, the modern state exists not to protect our rights, but to do us good or make us good. Instead of calling people rulers, now we call them leaders. Uh, They say that um, governments have begun to think about uh, their people um, not as subjects, so to speak, but as wards, pupils, or domestic animals is kind of interesting because the difference between the two is a subject still has rights that are are, uh, to be protected but a child and a pupil and an animal are simply meant to be controlled Um, and so that's why um, the the modern state tends to say things like um, our whole lives are, are uh, let, let me put it this way. So we want to say to the state many times, mind your own business, and the state will come back, um, your whole life is my business. 
And so the modern state tends to be the nanny state or the daddy mommy state where it's wanting to control everything. And that's why we have what we have going on in our own country today with wanting greater control over parental decisions and parental uh, power over children and their education and all kinds of things, even in our own country. Let me wrap up by reading the last section of uh, this story. In verse 24, we see the beginning of what we might uh, say, the encouraging part of the story, the, the, the deliverance of God's people. Excuse me a second. So in verse 24, it says, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything of, excuse me, anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. And so obviously, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into the fire. And uh, as a result of uh, being cast into the fire, because the fire was so hot, the men who cast them into the fire die. And yet, um, Nebuchadnezzar um, is able to see what's going on in the flames and realizes that something miraculous is happening. Evidently, this must have been a huge uh, chamber of sorts with an opening at the top and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in from the top into the fire after having been bound uh, together in their clothes. And so they fall into the midst of this fire that's been heated up seven times hotter than it normally is. There must have been a window and a door at uh, the ground level uh, through which men could go in and out, and the king could see into the chamber and see that um, they're not being consumed by the fire. In fact, they're not even bound anymore. They're not laying down anymore. They're actually walking around. 
Uh, they were cast into the fire bound, but they're walking around in the fire loosed. Uh, outside the fire, there were three of them. But inside the fire, there were four of them. And so Nebuchadnezzar sees what's going on, and he says, wait a minute. Um, did you see three men go into the fire? He's beginning to question his own sanity at this point. And some people wonder whether or not anybody else saw four men in the fire. Some people think maybe only Nebuchadnezzar saw the fourth man in the fire. And so he asks the question, you know, how many men did we throw in? And then he says, look, there are four men walking around in the fire. And it's interesting. There are those who comment on this and think about this walking around in the fire, like what was happening in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were with the Lord walking about in the cool of the day. Can you imagine in the heat of the fire, they were walking around in the cool of the day. They're experiencing Eden. Why? Because to be in the presence of the Lord is to be in heaven. They were in heaven in the midst of the fire in that sense, in the sense of being in the very presence of the Lord. And so, obviously, the king uh, calls to them and, and tells them to come out. And what we see here is a picture of the fact that no matter what evil men might do to the people of God, they cannot ultimately hurt the people of God. Um, there's an interesting passage in Luke 21 where the Lord Jesus talks about the fact that there will be times when they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you. Um, but he says it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. He says in verse 16 that they will put some of you to death and you will be uh, hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, isn't that interesting? In verse 27, it tells us that the men through the fire were not hurt at all. It says that um, the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. So it says um, the hair of their head was not even touched, not even harmed. So the Lord says, um, yet not a hair of your head will perish. And yet, he says, they will put some of you to death. So how can that be? How can you die as a martyr for Christ, and yet not a hair of your head will perish? What it means is to perish means to be lost everlastingly. And so he says, yes, some might have to die in my service. Not everyone's going to be rescued from the fire and not have to die. Some might be, but some may not be. And yet all 
will come through the fire just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They will ultimately be protected and saved, and they will suffer zero loss. Whether you suffer and die or not, you will come out of the fire just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You will suffer no loss from the evil that men seek to do to us. And that's why we're encouraged not to be afraid of evil men. We're encouraged not to be afraid of evil governments. We're, we're encouraged not to be dependent on the government. And that's why someone has said, um, it is the man who needs and asks nothing of government who can criticize its acts and snap his fingers at its, at its ideology. What we don't want to do is to feel like we're in, we're in dependence on the government. Uh, that's why these people in Daniel chapter 3 were so quick to fall down and worship that statue and to do whatever King Nebuchadnezzar said without even thinking whether they actually agreed or not. They were going to give at least outward submission. Why? Because they were dependent on the king. But these men were not dependent on the king. They were dependent on God. They weren't dependent on the government. They were dependent on God. And so their greatest concern was to obey God and not the government, unless it meant uh, obeying the government in order to obey God. That's the way God always intended for it to be. And so in light of that, let me just make some uh, application here as we wrap things up. The first application is to be opposed to tyranny. Um, The reality is that uh, totalitarianism is the state seeking to control everything, wanting to control everything in total, totalitarianism. And there are tools uh, that, that they use in order to try to control everything and everyone. And obviously, one of the primary tools is the very tool that Nebuchadnezzar used, um, <coughs> excuse me, which is the tool of force or coercion of various kinds, uh, penalties, consequences, um, the, you know, imprisonment, death, whatever it might be. And so totalitarian governments uh, will do that when they have to, but if they can avoid it, they realize that uh, that can only go so far to control uh, the population. And so they use other things as well. They use fear, and therefore they promise to save society from what they fear. Uh, they use isolation by separating people from one another. They use distraction by allowing people to indulge themselves in media and drugs and other kinds of things. They promise the greater good. You know, if we all do this together to be for the greater good. And so they try to get everybody on board with a a noble cause. Uh, They will also use the divide and conquer type of approach where, you know, these are the good people in, in society and these are the bad people in society. And we have to oppose the bad people and gather together so that we can achieve the greater good. Obviously, welfare, dependence on the government is a huge thing that keeps people in submission to totalitarian uh, governments, to tyrants like Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Hatred is part of it. Obviously, propaganda, spreading lies and misinformation that are meant to shape reality 
in a way that seems to justify the kinds of control that they want to exercise over our lives, <clears throat> and even shortages. Having shortages in society calls people to focus on just trying to get by from day to day, and they're not as concerned about the bigger issues that are going on in society. Um, again, C.S. Lewis has said, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. And he goes on to talk about the fact that uh, usually the the arguing point of all tyrannies is I'm doing what I'm doing for your good. And so we have to be aware of that. Um, he says, those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And so he says, to be cured against one's will and cured of states which we may not regard as disease is to be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. In other words, not to be treated as those with rights that need to be protected, but to be treated as those who need to be controlled because we're not able to make decisions on our own. And so we just have to be aware of that dynamic, that beast mode that governments can easily go into when unchecked. And uh, so we need to pray for those in government. We need to support the legitimate use of authority, but we need to oppose uh, the abuse of authority as well. But beyond that, let me just encourage us just on a personal level with regard to our own faith in light of uh, what we see in this story. In terms of thinking about faith for the fiery furnace, uh, I think I mentioned before, it was Woody Allen who said, I'm not afraid to die. I just want, don't want to be there when it happens. And so one of the hardest things about um, the idea of being faithful is what we might have to go through in order to be faithful. And there are a few ways to die that are probably more terrifying than to burn alive. There could be some that might be just as terrible and even more terrifying, but that ranks right up there at the top of the list. And yet these men were given grace through faith. That's what it says in Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace through faith, and therefore God gives grace through faith. And so we need to Feed our faith in the promises of God. We need to feed our hearts on the truth of what the Bible says so that we can be prepared to take whatever stand we need to take in our own individual lives, whatever might come. It's interesting that we know that Daniel chapter 3 is not just a fable. It's not just a story because of what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, because it makes reference to those who, what we might call, are in the hall of faith. And it says in Hebrews 11.32, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kings and kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, which is the story of Daniel that we'll eventually get to, quits the power of fire, which is obviously a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this very story in Daniel chapter 3. And so we know it's a true story. It's not just a parable that's meant to encourage us somehow. It truly happened. And yet when it goes on, it talks about the fact that 
God can save in that way, but he may not always do that because it talks about those as it goes on from there in verse 35. Others were tortured. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Uh, They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. Uh, They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So the point is that we can trust God to deliver us in some sense, whether it's actually deliver us from any uh, consequences um, temporally on this earth, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We come out of the fire uh, without even the smell of smoke on our clothes. Or maybe maybe we get tortured and we have a limp for the rest of our lives, or we actually die. But in the end, God says, you will still receive the same ultimate protection that um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego received, which is you will lose nothing. Not one hair of your head will perish. The Lord Jesus says, I promise you, you will not lose a single hair on your head. I will protect you and provide for you. And so the real issue is not whether or not we're going to lose anything in our suffering, except whether we'll lose our faith. And that's why in First Peter, uh, Peter could say in verse 6 in chapter 1, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that the real uh, thing we want to be concerned about losing is our faith. God has promised that we won't lose anything through the fire. We need to be concerned that we hold faithful. That's why the whole book of Hebrews is about guarding your heart, watching your heart, encouraging one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that we do not walk away from Christ, so that we do not let go of Christ, no matter what suffering we might have to face. We we need to pray for a faith that will endure the threat of the fire and will go through the fire and will be shown to be gold truly saving genuine faith. The second thing um, is that we can pray in light of the fact that God is up to good things in the fire. Um, One of the interesting things about this story is um, something that's reflected in a Southern Gospel song by the Isaacs, in which they say in in one of their, um, (coughs) excuse me, In one of their lines, it says, if you're facing the fire and it's too hot to stand and an enemy's tied your feet in your hands, 
Remember the story and the lesson we've learned. The ropes that tied them were the only thing that burned. So what burned in the fire with regard to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The only thing that burned in regard to them was that which bound them. And so if we think about that figuratively, think about that metaphorically, we can say that God has good purposes in putting us into the fire so that we can be freed from that which binds us. Uh, Jesus could say, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And yet one of the things that Martin Luther said is that there are three things that it takes to be a godly person. It takes the word of God, it takes prayer, and it takes trials. And so it's a combination of knowing the truth, praying that we would believe it and hold on to it, and then being put through the testing of fire. And it's through all of that together that we are actually set free from sin more and more and set free from that which binds us so that we are set free to praise and worship God, set free to trust God more and love God more and love people more. Uh, it says in Psalm 119, and this it was Psalm 119 that Martin Luther was reflecting on when he talks, talked about the need for the word and prayer and trials. Psalm 119.67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And then in verse 71 of Psalm 119, it says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So learning takes affliction. It doesn't just take reading your Bible and praying. Those are huge things. Those are necessary things. Those are essential things. But trials are also essential to truly learning it so that we're free in greater, deeper ways, uh, free through the truth of it. Uh, there's, there's a verse in Job 36 which says, He, God, delivers the afflicted in their affliction and opens their ear in time of oppression. So it says that God delivers the afflicted in their affliction in it they're delivered and so just like shadrach meshach and abednego they were delivered in the affliction delivered from that which bound them and so the encouraging thing is that uh we don't go through the fire for nothing uh it's a way of testing our faith and and showing us and others that our faith is real and we need to know we need to know and others need to know that our faith is real. And when our faith survives the fire, then we can have a greater assurance of our relationship to Christ. And others can see the demonstration of our faith as well. And as we go in and through the fire, we can also see God's hand at work to loose us, to free us from other things. Maybe things we would even realize we need to be set free from. And then the last thing is uh, the fellowship that takes place in the fiery furnace or in the trials we go through, the fiery trials that we go through. Obviously, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar saw the fourth man in the fire who was like a son of the gods or like 
the son of God. Um, it says in Isaiah 63, verse 9, in all their affliction, he, speaking of God, was afflicted. Speaking of Israel, it says, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. So think about that. It says, in all their afflictions, speaking of his people, he, God, was afflicted. Which means in some sense, he was in it with them. He was not off you know, playing golf or doing something different. He was in it with them. And in some mystery, um, mysterious way, he was afflicted even in their affliction. He's afflicted even in our affliction. He's a part of that suffering. Somehow, there's a fellowship taking place between us and Christ, even in our sufferings, which is an amazing thing. It says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4, God who comforts us in all our affliction. He comforts us in our affliction. We can't know the comfort of God without being afflicted. So affliction requires, um, is required for us to know the comfort of his presence in ways we would not know it otherwise. Um, John Patton, I've told a story about John Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides, went to this uh, island where there were cannibals, and one day he finds him up, and actually at night in the midst of this tree while all these cannibals are running around shooting muskets and looking for him and trying to kill him. And he talks about the fact that it was in that tree that night that the Lord Jesus had never drawn so near to him as he did then. That his experience of fellowship with Christ and his experience of Christ drawing near him and being with him was the greatest when he was in the midst of his affliction. And that's what we see happening in this story as well. We see the Lord Jesus, I believe, drawing near to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and actually fellowshipping with them in a way that they did not experience outside the fire, which would cause them to look back on that and say, thank God, with the fire, not because of the fire, but because of the fellowship, not but because of the fire, but because of the being set free from that which bound them, not for the fire per se, but because of the faith that was confirmed through the fire. In Isaiah 43, um, it says, God says to his people, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, do not fear, for I am with you. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my Glory. That is the message of Daniel chapter 3 to all God's people, to you and to me. There's a, another Southern Gospel song uh, on this story in Daniel chapter 3. 
It's called The Fourth Man. Johnny Cash has done ver- versions of it, and other people have too. And it goes something like this. Here's a story from the good book we know, a story about a miracle that happened long ago. We hope that you'll take courage when temptations you meet. There's somebody watching you who's strong when you're weak. Now, the prophet I, excuse me, now the prophet Daniel tells about through men who walk with God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, before the wicked king they stood. And the king demanded them, bound and thrown in the fiery furnace that day. But the fire was so hot, the men were slain, who forced them on their way. Now, when the three were thrown in and the king rose up to witness, witness their awful fate, he began to tremble at what he saw, and in astonished tones he spake. Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of that fire? Well, I, well, though I see four men unhurt, unbound, and walking down there. There's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery coals they trod. And the form of the fourth man that I see is like the Son of God. Then there's a chorus that is sung throughout the song. They wouldn't bend. They held on to the will of God, so we are told. They wouldn't bow. They would not bow their knee to the idol made of gold. They wouldn't burn. They were protected by the fourth man in the fire. They wouldn't bend. They wouldn't bow. They wouldn't burn. They were protected by the fourth man in the fire. They wouldn't bend. They wouldn't bow. They wouldn't burn. Ultimately, uh, the story in Daniel chapter 3 is kind of a, a prototype story that is used throughout the Bible to say, this is the kind of testing that goes on uh, in the world for people who truly believe in Christ. It's a test of faith. And the fires may look different. Uh, the tests may be different to certain degrees, but all of it is a fiery trial that tests our faith, is meant to set us free, that is meant to cause us to find Christ in deeper uh, measures of fellowship. And it's meant to remind us that our God and our Lord has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you give us some encouragement through your word. Help us to see how it applies to our own lives today and in the days ahead. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to Uh, Think rightly about our government, both in terms of its being a blessing in many ways and in terms of its potential to be a beast. Help us to appropriately support our government. At the same time, help us to be careful to hold our government accountable as we need to. And help us not to simply blindly follow the government um, when it calls us to do things that would not be pleasing to you. And so please lead us, give us much wisdom and discernment in these difficult days. And we do pray that you would grant us all a strong faith that would be able to speak like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego spoke, uh, that we would be settled in our hearts, that we will not uh, even uh, entertain the possibility of walking away from Christ. We will not even entertain the possibility of um violating your word or violating our own conscience, but that we will seek to be faithful to you and we will trust you to deliver us in whatever way you see fit, maybe delivering us from all temporal consequences, maybe actually taking us home to be with you 
whatever might be your pleasure. We pray that we would be settled in our hearts, whatever the suffering might be, that we would rather suffer than sin. Give us the grace to rather suffer than sin, uh, to rather suffer than deny, to deny Christ. And so we pray that you would deepen our trust in your promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us and that we will um, hold on to your promise to do great and wonderful things through whatever fiery trials we must go through. We thank you. We love you. Bless you. And pray that you strengthen our faith. Again, we pray for your healing and strengthening for all those who are sick and suffering in various ways at this time. Help us to support and love each other uh, during this time. Please meet our every need. And may your name be glorified and honored in our hearts and through our lives. And we trust you to work all things together for our good and to magnify your name. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.